Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. It is so painful they have to take drugs, but they enjoy it. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Have you ever seen any of your victims? You know, I never feel comfortable on these sort of things. Victims? Be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, only. Free of income tax. Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. They have their five-year plans. So have I. Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fellow said, mentally for 30 years under the Borges, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. That was a clip from one of my favorite movies, probably in my in my top five of just. I think that movie is unbelievable, and you haven't seen it, right? I haven't seen it. I I've been meaning to see it for a while, but it's not available on Canadian Netflix right now. So you know, yeah. Well, you know, there are other ways of getting movies, and that's just a movie you should have. You should have the Criterion collection the Criterion. <laughs> thing of it. And again, this is not me being Jesse Prince. This is a classic. <laughs> You, my Orson friend, could Welsh, never be Jesse Joseph Prince. Joseph Cotton. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's, of course, the famous scene in the, um, what do you call those? The Ferris Wheel. Ferris Wheels. Yeah, Ferris Wheels. <laughs> Obscure <laughs> uh, carnival ride. And, and we're putting it on because he's exhibiting both some psychopathic tendencies there, yeah. not feeling any pity for the dots down there in the carnival. But also, he has some utilitarian uh, tendencies. You know, look at the difference between uh, Switzerland <laughs> and all their peace and happiness produced the cuckoo clock. And <laughs> what so. do you, you know, there's, there's something to uh, human misery that, that does breed uh, great works. Um, and this is, this is a topic maybe for another time. But I've often thought that, you know, if you're, if, if you're, from one of those islands where it's always sunny and warm and there's plenty of vegetation and food, what motivation could you possibly have to, to produce great works of art or literature or, or science or philosophy, whatever? Um, no, I know. Yeah, so there's something and, to... And, you know, that's the... You know, a lot of great artists tend to be deeply unhappy people. Uh, so totally worth it, right? Disproportionate. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally <laughs> worth it to be... You know, there's it, there's something to just mistreating your kid so that they'll always want to please you and produce great works, you know? So, like, they'll just be 
But see, that's the thing. <laughs> I think that's the trap, right? It's that I think that you think, oh, if I'm just miserable and I suffer, I'll be a great artist. But it doesn't work that way. No. 99.9% <laughs> of the people who are miserable and who suffer also suck at, at their art. <laughs> they're also and just like cowering cower in the shit. corner. <laughs> right. Everyone, yeah, everyone uses Van Gogh as like an excuse. Oh, no, nobody appreciated Van Gogh in their time. Right. But yeah. for every Van Gogh, uh, there's 10,000 other people that nobody appreciated. <laughs> Who also cut off their ears but never actually, like, painted something cool. Right. And, uh, and they suck. <laughs> so, so, so uh, really, it, we, we need to look at all of the numbers. We can't just look at one cell. We can't just, we just look at miserable and productive and, and we think that there's an effect there. All right. <laughs> all right. So this is part two of our discussion on uh, utilitarianism versus Kantianism. Um, you know what? Before we get into uh, too much discussion, about this rivalry uh, do you want to talk a little bit about podcast feedback and how yes we're, how eager we are to hear from our listeners yeah we want uh, we're eager to hear from you and we're eager to promote the podcast because i think we're starting to get some listeners now it yeah we have good like traffic from the traffic yeah yeah we have we have good traffic um uh, the, it's hard to tell what that means exactly. Yeah, yeah, you never know. But one way that we can tell is if you email us, verybadwizards at gmail dot com, or or find our email addresses personally. Um, like us, uh, we have a Facebook page now. We also have a Twitter page, but we're not really using that yet. Um, yeah, I, I I'm so bad at the Twitter. Um, you might. Uh, I'll. Do, I have a Twitter feed, although I have an embarrassingly low number of followers because I haven't really told anybody that's but why i definitely will uh will link to it on twitter if you're a twitter but not a facebook person because yeah. i've definitely had people tell me that facebook is you know for aunts right putting up right. photos of their uh kids halloween costumes yeah yeah that that is true so um, yeah but I also hate- itunes you know leave a review there leave some suggestions right because that one's almost guaranteed to get read by everybody um, yeah. and, uh, and so, so Tamil and I actually want to incorporate, uh, listener feedback into, into the show because some of you say very witty, funny, insightful, critical, mean things. Um, and to the extent that, uh, well, I mean, we should just say we re- we're going to read them all obviously, but, but we'd like to read some of them at least on, on, on the podcast. Yeah, we might have a segment, or I think we're going to have a segment, assuming we actually get <laughs> yeah, right. of uh, you know li- best listener feedback. Here's an example of one. So this is from a friend, an old friend from college. He says that he's listening to the, the first podcast now. He's talking about the time when. Uh, do you remember when I said that free will skepticism, moral responsibility skepticism, was like. Uh, uh, it used to be cool, but now it's too popular. Yeah. And I was saying, like, I liked it back. You know, it's sort of like if you discover a band, you know, when they were making demo tapes in the basement, and now they're really popular. Right, and right, right. And stuff like that. So, like, he, I like Justin Bieber before he was all cool. Yeah. <laughs> what he sent me from his iPhone is there's no way in hell you have ever discovered a band <laughs> that was making demo tapes in their basement. <laughs> I realize it was a simile, but still, better to draw from an experience you've actually had. <laughs> yeah, that's a... Uh, feedback has been really nice to you. <laughs> it's true. It's like a sport now on iTunes to just, like, say something, like, really... <laughs> you, would, you, you really mean you about invited me. that one, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, one of your friends. Uh, we'd like some feedback, and we've gotten a, we've definitely gotten some of this from people who aren't our friends. But one of Dave's friends praised me for having the humility to appear on a podcast with someone so much better looking than me. Uh, well, you know, yeah. I I I won't comment. To, some some people say that beauty is an objective, uh, objectively true thing, um, and I'll the leave it at that. Shoe fits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I just came back from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Speaking of beauty, we I, I was able to participate in a in a TED talk. Um, that oh yeah, we got a, You you have a TED talk that's online right now, right? Yeah, they put they put my TEDx New York, my TEDx East talk online. So so I think uh, out of you know a hundred thousand views, thirteen of them went to very bad wizards. You know, this, <laughs> this sucks. I'll tell you something because. I have a TEDx talk too, and uh, I think it has a grand total of something like six hundred and eighty. Uh, That's you uh, know because it was never on TED. Right. I don't have my head up Dan Ariely's ass like you did. <laughs> Listen, Dan Ariely is going to be a future guest on our podcast, so you better watch yeah, your mouth, true. my friend. 
<laughs> we'll, get, we'll get that your head up his ass. <laughs> you know, sure, I wish that you, you would just boy. admit that it was my uh, objective attractiveness, or at least the objective <laughs> quality of my of my talk. You have a uh, smooth, well-oiled head. <laughs> okay, go watch Tamler's TEDx talk, everybody. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very bitter about it. I also think it's just going to lead to a, just an imbalance in our uh, <laughs> in our power. Uh, you're just already starting to walk around with a little bit more of a swagger. You, of you, you notice that. You notice that. Yeah, yeah. smelling your farts. <laughs> and I don't blame you. You've got 100,000 people watching your TED talk. Uh, you know, nothing right. like my friend Amy Cuddy, who has uh, about, I think, last time i checked about 1.4 million she gets recognized on the street man but but you know she's a great psychologist but she's also more attractive than i am so what can i say so uh, well well you know it's not about how many people know you or watch you it's about the truth you know we lift each other up tamler we lift each other up all right uh so one day all right so so yeah sorry i cut you off Mm. my no, I was just going to segue into talking more about emotion um, that I was able to talk yet again about about disgust, and we probably we we might dedicate a whole show to disgust, but but um, one thing one of the things that that is nice about that clip that uh, from the third man is the guy really seems who's the is it Orson Welles character who is who is the psychopath. Are you are you asking me that yeah, 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 question? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. you don't you can't recognize No, Orson no, Welles? it is Orson Welles. I, I I think that I'm pretty sure it's Orson Welles, but that's a young Orson Welles, you know. I, I yeah, well, not younger than yeah. when he did <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> Tamler rolled his eyes so far up his head that uh, he looked like a zombie for a second at me. Yeah. Um uh so, <laughs> yes, Orson Welles asshole. When he points out the dots, this is something that I really like the clip. And and it shows that I, I think that that he really has no, none of the tender emotions, right? None of those. Was it Adam Smith pointed out? There's these tender human emotions that that seem to be at the base of morality, right? Um, right. And it reminded me of uh, one time Ted Bundy. They they asked him how it was that he could, you know, torture and murder and rape. Uh, I think at the time it was like 17 women, and his answer was. But there are so many people, and right. and it just it struck me. I remember re- I remember reading that at, at a time when I was just starting in at Cornell, um, and the first semester that I was there, somebody was telling me that there had been these protests uh, because they were trying to put up a new parking lot, but in order to do so, they had to uh, cut down a bunch of trees. And I don't know. There was something special about these trees, like they had leaves or something, and uh, and and. You know, in upstate New York, I was wondering why they were protesting, and I thought to myself, "But there's so there's so many trees here. Why, like, why would you care about those particular trees?" And I thought to myself, "Wow, that's how Ted Bundy thought about people, right?" <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I, I just remember this. So, <laughs> you told that story when we were giving our little joint presentation oh, yeah, 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 in Costa Rica right. yeah. at Nosara at the Harmony Institute, <laughs> which is all about <laughs> like environmental preservation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And your whole point was like, I'm obviously right to say right. this about trees, but like he actually thinks that about people. <laughs> but they just looked at you like you were Ted Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the Ted Bundy of trees, except for I don't ra- Ted, I don't rape yeah. them. Um, at least uh, I don't know how to rape a tree, but <laughs> oh, <I'll>, I'll, uh, <laughs> next time sure, you come down to I'm sure there's a video. You, actually, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do, is it coincidence that that uh, Orson Welles? is a psychopath and a utilitarian. Right. I mean, so that's what we were, uh, you know, that's what we left off is your study, which appeared to show that people who make utilitarian judgments, at least in the studies, uh, using the probes and scenarios that are commonly used to test uh, for those judgments, that they have some antisocial Machiavellian and even psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. Uh, so it's like they're Laker fans or something. Oh, and, well, you know, you're just – you're so bitter today. It's I, like – I know. I'm in, a bad, <laughs> I'm in a bad mood about the Ted thing. I know. It actually, a- it actually helps. It helps me. It helps me. You know, it trickles down. Uh, your, your celebrity trickles down. So, so anyway, that's what the study appeared to show. And there were sort of two interpretations like we talked about at the end of the last episode – 
There was one which is what everybody picked up on, right. which is utilitarians are psychopaths, essentially. Right. Um, that was and, – and, and there was a, an, an, an Eric Schwitzgibbel's blog. Here's the headline of the blog. Uh, Bartels and Pizarro, consequentialists are psychopaths. He, he then says uh, there are, I think, some gaps. This is the uh, in Bartels and Pizarro's argument, especially since there might be a pretty loose connection between real consequentialist moral thinking and tending to, say, push the fat man when given a trolley problem. So <laughs> he calls that a gap in your argument, but as I understand you, as I understood you from last time in our conversations about the study, that was partly your point, or maybe right. that was uh, the entire point, right. that these right. are not good ways of measuring consequentialist moral thinking because they uh, are actually tracking uh, psychopathic personality traits. Right, or at least emotional bluntness. Yeah, and we tried We tried to, uh, again, I think I said this last time, preempt this by calling it the mismeasure of morals. But, you know, in in the defense of, of that critique, um, I think that we we toy with the other idea a bit in, in the paper. And I think especially from my wonderful co-author, Dan Bartels, who, who I, I, I had to tone down a, th- a bit of the language because he actually really, really, really doesn't, like consequentialists very much you know and so he he we we do we do use language i i think that i we made the point clear that that what we mean is that this is a bad a bad way to measure true utilitarianism and um but we took it we took the the critique seriously you know i think that what we showed what we showed is is that psychopaths tend to answer on this way so we actually have some follow-up studies um, where we use we use some fancy methods to try to dissociate what's going on and what it, what really appears to be happening is that the people who who answer high on these psychopathy measures um, they're not it's not that they're especially pulled toward utilitarianism it's that they aren't especially moved by the deontological uh, scenarios. So it's not that they... So it's like they're like Orson Welles, like they really don't feel pity. Exactly. There's no... Yeah, there's no... You know, a dilemma by definition is supposed to have these like sort of two options that pull you in either direction. And uh, and you get the sense from from these these people who are responding uh, in favor of the utilitarian measure that, that what when you say, would you sacrifice one to save five, that it's almost like the, the denominator doesn't really matter. It's like they're, they're just okay with sacrificing one. Like they, they're not moved by the innocent person, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't love that I'm saving five people <laughs> right. by doing it, but at least I get to push the fat right, guy. Right, yeah. I almost think that if you just ask, would you push a fat guy onto train tracks, they might <laughs> right. say, yeah, they'd probably be more likely to say. So, uh, no, I mean, so, and that's really important because the idea is they're not drawn to the consequentialist outcome that's not what's right. primarily driving the judgment. It's not caring about the deontological. Right. It's uh, not that they especially wrongness. right. They especially value the math. They just find it easier to do math when when like that guy in the jail. It's the same. Yeah, it's the same thing. He's really you know the math is easy, guys. Come on, he's just not moved by the fact that one guy's innocent, right? And the Ted Bundys and the the, the and Orson Welles or whoever them. whoever that Orson you know, Welles funny, guy like. Well, why we're also not moved by it if you believe uh, the studies with the you know the switch, right? Uh, the two trains where you can just move a switch, then we're less moved by it too. So who's being more reasonable about this? The person right. who thinks that uh, there's a huge difference between pulling a switch or pushing somebody, or 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 the psychopaths, right? Yeah, you know, at least <laughs> right, at least they're sort of consistent across these. Because you know, part of the puzzle with these these dilemmas is that that uh, if it were really a matter of principle, like you know, sacrificing an innocent life, then you wouldn't get these differences. But you, what you get is that the the more physically distant you make the sacrifice, the easier it is for people to do the math. And um, so it's not really a matter of of killing, right? Actively acting in in the manner that the innocent person dies that seems offensive. It's just the like, it's having to bother pushing their flesh in with just enough pressure that they fall. That just feels really bad, and it gets it. And then watching them sort of splatter. Right, right, and that's that's what you know. So it's like a. 
you're okay. People are okay with eating meat, but they would be, they would not be okay with actually like slicing the cow's throat, right? It's not that they're opposed to the cow dying to, to make them, to give them a tasty meal. It's that, uh, it's that they just don't. Or, or, Or maybe they are opposed to it, but they just don't feel it. They don't feel it. Uh, when it's served to them in terms of a hamburger, right? What they're not, what they're definitely not opposed to, is eating a hamburger, right? Right, but, right, right. Uh, it's, I think it's an open question whether they're opposed to a cow dying. If so, here's an example I was using in my uh, retribution seminar. I have a grad seminar that I'm doing on retribution, and we were talking about capital punishment. You know, one of the things we were thinking about is should the victim have a say in whether capital punishment is in play? Right. You know, should the victim have to request capital punishment for it to be on the table or if the victim does request capital punishment should that influence the sentencing body whether it's the judge or the jury right and one of the things i thought i, I had this idea that it, i I'm, I'm i'm drawn to the idea of the victim having a say in sentencing but the idea that they could just check a box that said <laughs> I want capital punishment instead of you know life in prison or whatever just seems too easy. So my idea was you're allowed – the victim is allowed to request capital punishment in, in cases where they're eligible. The death penalty is, el- is an eligible uh, punishment. But they actually have to do the execution <laughs> themselves. <laughs> right. Because right. that's going to make them really think about what it is that they're doing. Right. If right. You, it's like hunting. Get, it's, it's like a hunter versus somebody who just goes right. to the It's like a hunter. Yeah. It's why it's a hunter is more admirable than, than somebody who just goes to McDonald's where it's just so sanitized that you really don't think about the cow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, or the pig. (laughs) Uh, But you know, you know, traditionally in things like uh, firing squads, for instance, I I think that it was common to only put one bullet and the rest be blanks, because the whole point there was so that not no one person has to suffer the emotional consequences, like most certainly, you know. Yeah. Um, But I think that's bad. You know, this is the problem with drones that we were talking about last episode, right? That <laughs> it's bad when you don't have to Sup- actually right. suffer the con- – like because the suffering is not I'm suffering. The suffering is in the form of the recognition of what it is that you're actually doing. Right. And if you really are so opposed to that, that, that you're going to suffer and feel terrible guilt, then that's something that needs to be taken into account. So that's why, that's why we, you and I, like Maddie from True, True Grit so much because she's, she's both yeah. endorses it as the proper punishment and wants to be there. And, you know, you get and the sense that she would sacrifice and risk and right. suffer some costs to do it. Right. You know, and that's also why I think we hate those fraternity kids that that have barbecues around executions when they happen for victims they didn't know. Right. And had and, and, and offenders that they did nothing. Right. You know, all they're doing is just celebrating a death that they essentially know nothing about. Right. But yeah, but, but let's get back to your study because it's really interesting. And there, and I want to talk about both interpretations of the debate because I think, as we said, the irony is while it is a misinterpretation, the Schwitzgibble, Eric Schwitzgibble and The Economist, mm-hmm. what they, uh, it's also one that I think – it sounds like Bartels just agrees with, and you agree with to a large extent, and I'm sort of there with you to some degree also. So, But let's first talk about what the true point of the paper is, which is these studies are not a good way to measure whether you're a consequentialist or not. Right, yeah. I think that it's, it's, it's measuring just t- two different things at least, right? One is whether you're emotionally blunted, and the other one is whether you, you actually endorse this principle. And so you can imagine that, that – um, that you're a true utilitarian or consequentialist and you're just as moved you, as anybody else. But you, through sheer force of will, right, override this emotional impulse that you have and say, nonetheless, this is the right thing. Then, you know, that that's the kind of utilitarian that I think we would want to exist, right? We want, we want, if, if you're going to do this, you want, if you're going to make this decision, and we've actually done some studies about this, uh, if you... If you're going to be the guy who who smothers the baby so that the Nazis don't hear um, everybody hiding, we want you to like have some some 
painful deliberation in this decision process, right? We want, we want to see that you had to override your natural human tendencies. Not that you were like, sweet, can I be the one? Like, <laughs> right? And I think that these things are capturing both of those people. These, these measures are capturing two very different kinds of people. And so if you believe that consequentialism is sort of as, as Josh Green does, this system two morality, right? The, the reasonable, deliberative, thoughtful, rational morality. And then you're using these as a measure of that. Then you're unwittingly capturing people who are, who are not, they're not especially rational. They're just especially unemotional. And this is consistent with, as you, as you mentioned before, Leanne Young studies with uh, people with brain damage. Um, and so, so, so we need, we need better measures or at least included to include some measures that remove people who are emotionally blunted. But it also could very well be the case that you have to be a little bit emotionally blunted to, to actually be convinced of the, of the truth of consequentialism. So there's this middle ground that you might have uh, that people say who are – if you have the normal dimensions of somebody who's really, really low in interpersonal emotion uh, or someone who's really, really sensitive – you might just need to be a little bit on on the the side of you know a little bit on the spectrum, let's just say, to to find consequentialism truly moving, right? Right. And again, I I sort of used Peter Singer as an example. Yeah. And I don't know him. Right. 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 Uh, the idea that he just doesn't really care about animals. Yeah, it's he's great. Not, right. It's he's great. not. It's not like he loves animals. He loves dogs. He's <laughs> like they, they kind of get on his nerves. Uh, but he just wants to start stop suffering. Now I believe him. I think yeah. he's being really sincere. But it's interesting that that kind of thing leads to one of the most consistent consequentialists out there. Right. When it, you know, as, as a philosopher, there's nobody who will really. I mean, that's why people are so against some of his views. It's not. It's just he's being consistent yeah. with his consequentialism. Oh, he's, like, you can't be against Peter Singer, but also call yourself a consequentialist. Right, right. No, I mean, he's, he's, he's a very, very extraordinary case of, of, of a consistent person. And will live that way. Yeah. And, and people say, oh, he doesn't give enough of his income or yeah. whatever. But he gives My students a always thousand say that. times I, more they, than anybody They always else end up like – about that. So they can shut the <laughs> – Yeah. They always end up like, what does he – what does he do? And I'm like, you know, the truth of his posi- – here's something very clear to the students. The truth of Peter Singer's position is is independent of whether or not he abides by it. <laughs> right? I, I, well – so that's interesting. So I, it would seem like that's obviously true what you just said. But I was talking to uh, someone in my department about that who was raising a version of this objection to Singer. And he said, and I said just what you just said to me yeah. that look, whether it's true or not is independent of whether he's living up to it or not. But he says, no, because if he can't even live up to what he's advocating, uh, that may show something about. And, you know, and this is Peter Singer, right? This yeah, is the yeah, guy yeah. who that may show something about the position, right? You know, something, so, right? So, so that it is either impossible to live up to, or that you don't really believe what it is that you're saying, right? And since these arguments do rely on conviction and into appeals to conviction and intuition about various premises, it does matter to what extent I think you are truly convinced by whatever the premises are that lead you to become a consequentialist. Right. So, well, so there's a couple of things there, right? So it could be that he, he, uh, that this is evidence, his inability to act on, uh, on his beliefs fully is evidence that he's not truly convinced, or it could be evidence that the difficulty of the task is so high that nobody can. And, and I think those are both sort of, uh, valid criticisms of the utilitarian position. And, and, and one of the things that people really seem to, to think is, you know, there's nothing I can do to, to meet those standards. So therefore, you know, it's, it's not a, a reasonable position to hold about the moral truth. So it's this whole, you know, ought implies can argument, right? If I can't possibly do it, then, right? But, but see, here's the thing. So then now I'm fighting back against that. Uh, if you require perfect consistency of any moral position, you're not going to have it, whether it's like Jesus, brotherly love, you know. Right. But that doesn't mean you can't aim for an ideal. Yeah, right? I, I agree. I, I think that, that setting the ideal is actually – it's a very clear ideal and nobody I, – I, 
accepting the limitations of uh, of agency and of of uh, even even the psychological limitations like peter singer says you know i mean i can't just put my mom in like the the budget the budget like retirement home yeah, right? right he he feels the pull of it and and he sort of I think that that what what he's essentially saying is in an ideal world where I could design the psychology of people, maybe I would make it so that they weren't pulled by this. But I can't help that. I, I love my mom. Right. This was Josh Green's uh, response when I sort of challenged him on on this question. But I was more coming at it for do you really think that you wouldn't want to – I forget what it was. Maybe kill the person who uh, – hurt your daughter or maybe just care about your child more than you care about the children of perfect strangers. You don't seem to really believe that, right? You would never actually act on, on those beliefs. And he said the same thing. He was like, yes, but if I was constructing an ideal world, this, uh, this is the world I would want, a world where people did that. And I, That's, I guess it just – but, but uh, do yeah. you really want I don't that? know. Yeah. And actually maybe we should and take who a – are you then? Yeah. yeah maybe we should take a break here because I think that raises a really interesting question. And I, 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 it's something that I've asked people too. If you were to design a world, would you really design uh, creatures that didn't have these sort of – Gut level deontological intuitions, and and I'm not sure. Ah, man, I'm not sure. Meaning, like, just certain things are wrong regardless yeah, of the consequences. Right. Like, like, certain things are right, or you're loyal to family, even in cases when you kind of know that it's wrong. Or yeah, you know, exactly. And so, so how much? Really, the big question here is how much do these emotions? How, how much are they leading us astray, and how much are they actually guiding us in in the right direction? Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Pastor Dr. Martin Semper. I'm here in the capacity as the chairman of the National Task Force Against Homosexuality in Uganda. I've taken time to do a little research to know what homosexuals do in the privacy of their bedroom. One of the things they do is called enoliking, where they, a, a man's anus is leaked like this by the other person like ice, cream. like ice cream and then what happens even poopoo comes out the other one poopoo's out huh? and then they eat the poopoo the other one they do is they have a sex practice called feasting where they insert their hand into the other man's hand and it goes all the, into the anus all the way and it is so painful they have to take drugs but they enjoy it now if we have any children please step out this is a parental guidance moment. You can see a man here having sucked the other person's rectum and the other person is poo-pooing. And this one is eating the poo-poo all over the place. Oh, eh? Tell me, when you have a law against homosexuality, do you say accept eating poo-poo? All right, by popular demand, or I don't know if it was popular. <laughs> it's it just your demand each time. My demand. Because <laughs> I think that's one of the funniest clips of all time. It's, There's a couple of funny things. The like ice cream, of course. Uh, just that little like ice cream, very seriously. But then also the uh, uh, after the, the, the fisting discussion and the anal, anal leaking discussion, you have – at this point, this is a parent parental guidance moment. Yeah. Uh, please I, ask your children to leave the room. After he's just described in detail, uh, in very graphic terms, all of the things that he thinks are are offensive. Um, then now, okay, now, and then and then he pulls out, and then he pulls out a like a Mac keynote presentation with like where he actually shows the images. Uh, to to everybody, and what cracks me up about that too is that when he's showing the images, like some people just recoil, and other people are just like staring, like like <laughs> intently. Like, try that, yeah. and I could just picture this guy in his office, like, okay, I have to convince everybody that that gayness is wrong, so let me just look at gay porn for two hours <laughs> and like find the best. Leave me alone, I'm studying. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but this actually, I mean. It's it's very funny, but it's also horrible because people in Uganda, right. uh, gay people in Uganda, are suffering because of I mean, this dying. kind I of mean, attitude. Right. Yeah. But the, what's interesting about it is, um, for our purposes, aside from it being a work of comic genius, is that he's clearly using the disgust 
that we're supposed to feel anyway uh, from the actions, the anal leaking, and the uh, <laughs> as an indicator of the the moral wrongness right. of the action. Uh, uh, you know, I recently gave a TED talk about this. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. It's, you, you don't stop. <laughs> about it. Uh, literally, every email is like, "Oh, dude, my TED talk uh, is getting a lot of traffic." Uh, yeah, apparently, come, some of that's going to come our way. Apparently, so much so that you put me in spam. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that was before. That was before your TED talk fame. Actually, uh, now I took you out because, well, you know, you can't treat really famous people that way. <laughs> So, yeah, this is what your TED Talk was about, your famous TED Talk. So why don't you uh, explain? Well, I think that the, just the more general question, right, disgust is one of these uh, – it's such an interesting emotion because uh, I think that at least for me – and you and I have actually had discussions about this. Um, for me, it's, a, it's a, a case where generally the emotion is supposed to protect us against contamination, like putting bad stuff in your mouth or touching things that might give you disease or even touching people who might give you disease. And But it's been sort of co-opted as, as a very strong emotion to guide a moral judgment. And I think that this is a clear case in which there's, there's a mismatch between, uh, between sort of what the emotion really is signaling and what people are using it. Right to influence their moral, how people are, are letting it influence their moral. All right, so yeah, let's talk about this because yeah. this is a really interesting topic. So the broad topic is to what extent our emotional response is a reliable indicator of uh, the truth of a kind of a moral judgment. So, right. uh, and then specifically when we talk about disgust, and we'll talk about the other emotions in a second. The, the the general argument that you make, I think, and also Dan Kelly in a really good book that I just reviewed called Yuck. Oh, yeah. Uh, Where did you review that? Uh, Philosophical Quarterly. Oh, cool. Uh, and your book just got reviewed too, right? We're, uh, are you trying relative to toss justice. me a bone there? <laughs> anyway, so uh, Dan Kelly's book – uh, he argues, just like you do, that, that that there's a mismatch between what the emotion was designed for and what it's actually indicating to us. So we, the emotion was sort of co-opted as a way of, what, norm enforcement, even though its original function was to warn us against pathogens and things right. that are bad for us and putting them in my bo our body and also, if it comes into our body, to expel them as quickly as possible. Right, and I, and I think that it's it's a particularly powerful one because it's so easy to induce. Uh, it's it's just a, it's a strong negative emotion that's really easy to make anyone feel. To, you know, to the extent that you you are moved by these things at all. All it takes is is an image or a or even a sentence in some cases. So it's really you know it's a really powerful emotion in that sense. So the guy who's not on your side in this, and also I think Martha Nussbaum has written about this. The guy who's not on your side is Leon Cass. Who right. wrote a famous article called "What Was It?" The Wisdom of Repugnance. Yeah, yeah. A and so, um, so <laughs> you know, whatever you think about Leon Cass and some of his other views, there, there was something sort of interesting about this that I don't know how you and Dan Kelly uh, are going to respond to. So, you know, it's one thing when we talk about, you know, when we're making fun of this Ugandan guy and the disgust that he's trying to induce about homosexual behavior. But, like, think about the extra disgust that we feel about an act of rape or child molesting or something like that. Right. And we do feel disgust about that in the way that we don't maybe feel about other kinds of actions that may do more harm, you know? Yeah, uh, so so a, a policy that actually actually ends up killing people. Yeah, um, or hurting more, hurting people, more people indirectly. That, 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 so there's something in me that wants to say there that is a reliable signal that there's something extra wrong about rape or, you know, uh, child molestation or these other kinds of acts that we feel disgust for that can't be cashed out in terms of its con their consequentialist, uh, you know, their utilitarian damage or their, uh, right. you know, or any other kind of damage that this disgust in that case is pointing towards something that we have no other way of really. Right. So let's let's take a, a, an example from another emotion. 
uh, to sort of get get to the question that we ended the last segment with. You're designing your god. You're you you are a god, and you are designing a creature. And now uh, you have to decide whether you want them to experience certain emotions to guide their morality. So my here here's my list. Like I want them to have empathy or sympathy. And I want them Without to empathy or sympathy. We're all those psychopaths who want to push guys off bridges. Exactly, exactly. And so, when you tell me about a, a, a crime, uh, uh, like a violent crime towards a child or an elderly person, uh, it, I'm just particularly bothered. And I think that it's it's actually my degree of of the feeling, the measure of suffering that that that, that person must feel under those circumstances is is sort of. Uh, uh, a cue to the severity of my moral judgment. Like I think it's actually worse when you cause more pain, when you cause pain to people who who don't know that you know why it's happening. That that sort of thing. Now disgust. So you you hear about a, a brutal rape. Is that you? Are you really being moved by the the gory details of it as a as a cue to your moral judgment, or is it just are you using that's disgusting as a it's sort of a, a, a metaphorical description of the, the... No, I mean, I find those acts disgusting. Like so if, the, really if the killer was actually or it's cleaner... Like a, you know, this is maybe why he called it repugnance or revulsion or something like that. It, 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 it's viscerally horrible, that idea to me. It's not disgusting in the sense of, like, eating shit is disgusting or... It's a it's a different form, it's, but I think it's it's a kind of form of disgust that this is part of the co opting, right? It was co opted as a way of of warning people of 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 mo- motivating them to refrain from certain kinds of behavior. So okay, well, so I don't. So there's a question here as to whether this is the same the same emotion because I, I see what you're saying. What is it if it's not disgust? Well, so Roger Heiner Sorolla, who's a Soroya, who's a uh, psychologist uh, who's studied, who's done some good work on disgust, uh, I think has has a, a persuasive case that what when we are referring to these cases like a, a feeling of disgust or moral repugnance, it's more like indignation or anger. It's it's closer to an emotion of anger that requires an appraisal that the thing is is actually wrong and that that's what's ca- that's what's moving us. Disgust doesn't require that. And in fact, disgust is a very sort of a association-based emotion. That is, if poo touches my food, the food is bad. Um, when we're when anger is more of an appraisal, like you, you, an indignation is an appraisal. This is so wrong that it therefore really upsets me. Not that this is so gross, like as as a low-level cue that don't touch it. You know? Huh. I mean. So I, I, I'm trying to figure out if that's a legitimate descriptive representation of the feeling, or is it just a way of getting out of the conclusion that disgust, at least in some cases, is a reliable indicator of uh, you know the right. extra wrongness of a certain. Act. And now, it, I, I'm not saying you don't have other reasons to think these things are wrong. You do. But what the disgust is doing is signaling that this is in a sort of special category of wrongness. So in a case where – see, I'm not sure that all all that's happening – I think the action is happening in the appraisal. So I think that it's so wrong that I find it repugnant, not that it's it's so disgusting that it's more wrong. So I don't find a difference between, say, uh, a crime that is especially gory and a crime that's very cl- meticulous and clean. Right, like uh, Dexter, the, psych- the psychopath uh, right. on the TV series, uh, he's actually very, very good at keep staying, like at being neat and clean and tidy. And so I don't have any of the like what I would call the low level sort of core disgust reaction. But uh, but I might have the same repugnance. But the repugnance comes from my appraisal that it's a monstrous act, not from not not a gut level reaction that leads me to conclude that it's a monstrous act, monstrous act. So the the causality there is what what I so, think. So so, but all right. How, for, a, a, two questions. A, how do you know that that's the case, and uh, that it's such an extra monstrous act if it can't be cashed out in terms of the, you know, some other sort of moral value or theory that you happen to subscribe. Right. Well, so to. so so I think that that it can. That is, I think there's good reason to think that rape and and uh, child abuse are particularly monstrous. 
um, just because of the nature nature of the crime, not because of any of its like sort of low level, like the properties of of the description. I, I think that there's enough reason to think that uh, even if I had no disgust response, that I would find child molestation monstrous. Oh, I, I mean, I well, that's the question, right? I mean, if we didn't have that kind of low-level response, we might find it very morally wrong for all those sort of normal reasons. Right. But we might put it in a different category of of moral wrongness in the same way that, like, Ted Bundy, you know, is like, there's so many people. Well, there's so many children. Right. And, you know, that that... I don't know. It just seems a little too easy to just assume that what you're having in this case is a... Co- you're cognitively recognizing the uh, monstrousness of the act. I, I don't know. It seems a little post hoc to me, but I'm not sure. Well, so, I, so I, there's a couple definitely of, one I don't... I, yeah, I don't there, are, there are a couple of sources of evidence that you could use. One one is that I think that in other languages, the, the word disgust isn't really used that much for for the uh, sort of gr- gross moral violation, like a... a um, that anger terms are more likely to be used. Some some languages do use it, uh, but other for others it doesn't make sense because disgust is better translated as gross, like it grossed me out. And we don't really say that about a moral violation, like that was really gross. Um, but another one is disgust sensitivity. So people who are more easily disgusted should find it more um, that that these monstrous acts that you're calling morally disgusting are are actually in a different category and I, and I actually think that I that we could probably look at those data I don't because uh, we have a bunch of them but we usually only find a correlation it, be, with disgust sensitivity and judgments of of sexual uh, so we find a relationship between judgments of homosexuality judgments of, of abortion things that are like sort of in the sexual domain so these are people who are on the disgust high on the disgust right. sensitivity spectrum which right. means they're more easily disgusted or also well I mean you have great studies on this are all more likely to be conservative more likely to be against gay marriage right? yeah but you know you're 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 right though that I don't know that we ever ask uh, about rape and child abuse and about these things that might be prototypically morally disgusting so so that's a good question right is it that is it that sometimes disgust fires such that it it uh, it gives an extra push right it's like a, a a cue so then the question becomes when do you know that it's a valid signal and when is it a, a right yeah a, and and how do you know that we have the so, same problem with empathy by the way if if we assume if we're un- unless we're somebody like Peter Singer and Josh Green who really think that all the emotions should be left out of Mm-hmm. Yes. But we're not like that. Neither you nor I are like that. I think both of us think that emotions in general are crucial to right. uh, accurate moral judgment, or at least as accurate as you're going to get. Right. So the question is where you draw the line. And I think everybody wants – or most everyone wants to draw the line at disgust and say that disgust is not relevant, but that things like empathy and also moral outrage – Resentment, right? Uh, that these actually are reliable, and you know, to some degree, it constitutes the truth of the moral judgment. Right, that's what I was going to say. It, in it, some ways, our position like, isn't just that they're they're they lead to accurate. It actually right. gives that's what it means. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's not it's not as if there's a that you have to do a calculation, and sometimes if you add this emotion, it gives you like a, a little boost. Um, in making the right calculation, it's that the right calculation like is Adderall the one. for a midterm or something. Yeah. Like that. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Does that work? Does that help? Um, I don't know. We should try it sometime. Man. I'm out. Um, so, so yeah, I I think that's really the million dollar question, and it's not as if you know I say this, but and you're right to take me to task on it though, because I say it. As as if it's sort of obviously true that disgust is 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 not should not signal should not be used as signal and and other ones like empathy should, um, but the truth of the matter is empathy gets us in just as much trouble as disgust does. So there's plenty of evidence that we make uh, uh, the kinds of moral judgments that we even we would think of as probably the wrong ones when we're too driven by empathy. So for instance, uh, we're more likely to feel empathy. For the suffering of somebody who looks like us, or right. who's related to us, or you know the classic case of of but who was the the one the girl, little girl who got trapped in the well was a baby Jessica who got trapped in the well back in the day. 
um, in Texas. You should remember this. You're older than me. But uh, this was right. I remember The Simpsons where a kid got sucked. <laughs> yeah. So there was this. This was I love down the well. <laughs> so there was a little girl who got trapped in the well on some, you know, on the in at her in in her backyard because apparently in Texas they have wells in, in your backyard. And uh, and this All is just them. when CNN was starting out as a cable news network. And so they had like cameras on her twenty four seven, and there was like the scene, you know, the scene of the rescue attempt. And all of these donations poured in, right? All right. of this attention was, and this was for one little girl. And meanwhile, like there's just thousands of African kids dying, right? And so here's or American a, kids, or, or even American, American kids, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And which is apparently more compelling to you <laughs> than African kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but no, yeah, yeah, right. like, I'm sorry, I don't have the same sort of universal love <laughs> that you do for and so, all of humanity and so all there, living you, well, sentient beings. You, you have a goal now. So, yeah. But there's a case where empathy makes us makes us sort of fav- be play favorites in a way that even we would think is, is the wrong right thing. or like with it, you know we're much more likely to be against acute animal being harmed than a right you know this is why octopus octopi or octopuses or whatever the, uh, they get fucked over <laughs> you know they're really smart they're you know they're just like smart right, as right, dolphins right. practically but nobody gives a shit about them because of how weird they look right exactly yeah I mean well, like wombats like or whatever they're, whatever those little animals with cute eyes that are essentially rodents you know like, like yeah no who are octopus could <laughs> you know run circles around intellectually we should, and, and we should have a pro, uh, you should have a campaign to dress octopuses up in like cute outfits and yeah. and therefore prevent them from being from being killed and eaten. And, and, and so, yeah, and we're geared towards that, right? Yeah. I mean, the more something looks like a cute baby, yeah. the more we like them because we are designed to be empathic towards right. Towards so, small- how, so how do we draw that line then? I mean, so so I think both you and I agree that 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 these these emotions often, you know, so in, pick whatever emotion you want: anger. Um, as you say, indignation or resentment or empathy, sympathy, disgust. So where – how do we figure out when they are being good signals and when they're not? Um, it seems I, like – I mean we, that's – so yeah. one thing you could do with disgust, which is what Kelly does and I think you do too, right, is you could say there's a mismatch – unlike say resentment, which was designed to respond to cases where – Norms are being violated within the community or the group and stuff like that. Um, or empathy, which was designed to make it – to motivate you to help people. Uh, disgust was designed to do something completely different, uh, just to do with protecting your body and food and stuff right. like that. But I, yeah, the problem I, with that is that it, it – it, it relies on the truth, the empirical truth of that argument. Well, first of all, but even like – so Kelly does this. He says that's one part of dessert. But then it was co-opted also as a means of norm enforcement and, uh, You know, within the human body. It was co-opted by yeah. natural selection. And, and once you say that, it's like, well, okay, well then, that, yeah. that right. those are put now in the category of these other emotions that we're saying are mostly good. So right. where do you draw the line? Right, right. Uh, that was my big complaint, although I really like the book. But that was my big complaint is I never understood – why that in itself didn't make disgust a more legitimate signal of reliability. Right. And, and, and yeah, and I, at the end of the day, I don't want it to rely on the truth of these, these sort of, uh, you know, adaptationist accounts. Right. I, I think right. that, that there probably should, you know, is it really the case that if, if I find out that disgust actually evolved to, to serve morality, that I'm going to change my mind about its role now? I don't right. think so. Now so now you right? have to be <laughs> right. Now, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, so there is something natural about empathy or sympathy, which pulls us toward perspective taking, that I think feeds into the the rational part of morality as well. Which is, I've never thought about your suffering, and now I'm being drawn to think about your suffering in a way that I wasn't before, and I think that that matches well with the with sort of what we might agree of as a good moral principle which is hey think about you know like the golden rule like how would you feel and but but it's not right it's certainly not always reliable so you know and paul bloom makes this argument like you know what um create a create a a world with fairly dumb creatures that all they have is emotion and then when they live in sort of small communities or whatever they the empathy is a good thing 
um, you know, because everybody looks like them and everybody's probably related, but you get, you get to sort of large societies and these emotions themselves start misfiring. But, but, right. but we're different because we can actually check for consistency. We can say, all right, is it really the case that I, that my emotion now for baby Jessica, because I saw her on CNN, uh, should motivate me more than the, the starving kids in West Virginia. And we can make this kind of check. Right. And, uh, and so there is this sort of natural, like now, now that we have that ability, we're more responsible for, I don't know what you think of that. But by I mean, checking for consistency, it, it seems like doing that is sort of like the baseline for being consistent is something like consequentialism. Right. It may be. It may be. It's like I, mean, I, I care about baby Jessica, but there's three other kids that are yeah. suffering more that all this money could help a lot more. That's I mean, how I know I'm being inconsistent, that I'm just disagreeing with the consequentialist analysis yeah. and of I, that and I think And I think this is where I'm sympathetic to people like, like Josh Green and, and John Barron when they argue like, look, isn't this, isn't this sort of evidence that, that, uh, that, that what we're really saying is – at times of non-reflection, we're pulled by these these emotions, and and therefore we should be consequentialists. I think it's slightly different in that we need to be pulled first by those emotions before we even get to the the consequentialist arguments. And that's right. why I think that 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 removing those emotions would actually make us the psychopaths. But yeah, there is this there is this great these you know these these great studies like on identifiable victims and or on charitable donations where if you put a picture of one kid. Who needs your help? Like you're more likely to donate money than if you put a picture of like five kids, yeah. and and it's like why? Like it's just tricking your psychology into like it, you know. See, I, we, I mean, neither of us, I think, have settled opinions on this. Right. But my my gut, my uh, instinct about the the solution to this problem is not the, to go the Josh Green, Peter Singer route and say. You know, you just this shows that consequentialism is or utilitarianism is the right uh, theory because it doesn't. Because the whole reason you're getting started caring more about four people than two is because of empathy. Yeah. Yep. And so um, you need it you to know, get off the ground. Em- right. You need it to get off the ground, and there's just no reason for it to stop right there. Right. And, and I think that's what the psychopath that- is. The psychopath is a great example of morality never getting off the ground. Right. So, but but what if you do regard these things as uh, all things being equal signals, but they can be easily overwritten, especially if they conflict with other strongly held convictions or principles? I mean, the bullet you'd have to bite with that kind of view is: say you're somebody that finds just you know, forget about ain't no leaking, but like <laughs> two guys kissing, disgusting. Yeah, you're sort of have to swallow that that's a very maybe mild indicator that there might be something wrong with that kind of behavior, but it's so overwhelmed by all these other positive reasons to, you know, not, uh, to not really care and that you end up thinking, well, obviously there's nothing morally wrong with it, but not because you're just completely disregarding the disgust response, but because it's just, it, it, it's nothing compared to all the other reasons. Right. And, and I, here's where I think that the disgust response is actually um, a weak signal even to us. So even though it gives us a strong sort of visceral reaction, uh, right. when we look at our disgust response in everyday life, um, I, you know, and I, I, I try to tell students this too, like, you know, the thought of two gross, fat people making out and having sex is uh is gross right oh, by, by, by definition is <laughs> i was gonna i was we i did and then we actually edited Excuse me, we edited it. That's right. <laughs> pause for editing um <laughs> and uh so but but that's not no one no one would argue that that's actually immoral i, I mean maybe some would argue but you know picking your nose is gross too but that's not immoral either i, I think in general we're okay knowing that disgust is a signal to I, just that we don't want to do it maybe like we don't right. you know yeah. um same with eating something like yeah. some people you know like they they're just disgusting the idea that somebody is eating this thing but we don't think it's morally wrong right right it's just a signal i'm not doing that it's, i don't right. i don't want to do that yeah and disgust uh, is so easily tied to sex and maybe it's actually some have argued that sexual disgust is its own thing um because it's so tied to incest and incest avoidance that maybe that has sort of a stronger normative appeal 
um, whenever, whenever you involve it. So we certainly get it that like, you know, if you just say a sexual act that is actually completely harmless, um, people are more willing to say that it's wrong if it's just completely gross. Right. Um, and so, so maybe in those cases, you just, you just get it a slightly higher tie to a normative belief, like, or a cultural norm too. Um, so, yeah. So have we solved the problem? Um, I, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, we're very close. We're very right. closer <laughs> than any other two people have ever been. You know, it's like right before Neil Armstrong. Right. Rest right. in peace, by the way. Stepped Rest on the moon That's and right. Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. He got kind of screwed. He did. You know, especially he was the cameraman, right? Is that what he was? I don't know. Who was taking the pictures of Neil Armstrong? See, this is where uh, <laughs> I, I have very shameful ignorance about the, uh, yeah. the but, I, but I'm not sure about Orson Welles and you're like all on my ass well that's disgraceful it's <laughs> disgusting I feel repugnant <laughs> by the way Leon Cass but uh, you know for, for all his kooky views on like why licking ice cream cones in public is wrong is a is just a great writer I mean that essay is just a, a great it's, example it's, of, of good writing persuasive yeah, yeah, and and you don't find it like you know this. Uh, I mean, he's writing it right about stem cell research. Yeah, right, right. I mean, part of the problem is uh, with that. With the ultimate conclusion he's arguing for is that I don't find stem cell research to be discussed. <laughs> I know. I can't even. I, I can't even, even like, muster the intuition. Like, what? I can't even muster up the intuition that it's like disgusting right. or, or wrong. Yeah, and I think that's a more appropriate reply to that thing. That's just your weird thing. <laughs> yeah. that you find uh, stem cell research to be disgusting. That's right. Not. It's like one of those phobias that nobody else has, but like the the one person who has it is like really like kooky about it. You know. I mean, so like, uh, yeah, I, I I feel I almost worry that we didn't set up this problem enough. But the general idea that that emotions can be a- accurate indicators, you know, like fear. You know, right. you f- you're you're right. fearful when, and that's usually an indicator that you're in trouble. And yeah, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's pretty straightforwardly adaptive and right, and and uh, and all that stuff. And and psychologists can easily show that that it can misfire, right? So if if I right, like, make you afraid of of one thing, and then and then later on you make a completely different judgment about another thing, and you're wrong, right? Um, but I think the task that though is that in those cases, like so, for instance, if I scare you with like whatever a, mo- a scary movie clip, and now I ask you to evaluate your probability of uh, of getting in a car accident, and and it's higher than if you watched like a sad movie. There we have like a, a fairly decent normative standard to evaluate the, the accuracy right. of that emotion. And what's tricky in morality is that nobody agrees on the normative standard to begin with, right? So right. it's like, oh, man. That's how, the problem. Yeah. So like daddy long legs, if I'm like scared of a daddy long legs. You know, you're, uh, exactly. I, I can tell that that's a misfired emotion just because somebody can like cover my body in da- uh, daddy long legs and <laughs> I won't get hurt right. at all. And, I, and, and, you know, you can realize that and it actually affects – how scared you are of them maybe the next time. But there's nothing you can do to show somebody that right. this act is really morally r- right. 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 There's uh, no data. Although, yeah. except provide a lot of other considerations, I guess, yeah. you know, to make the person believe that they themselves don't really think that's morally wrong by any other standard that they themselves subscribe to. Right. So, like I mean, my, that's one right, thing. Right, like the ugly people having sex example. Right, the yeah. ugly people having sex. You can say, "Yeah, it's disgusting," which might be all things being equal, an indicator that that's wrong. But then, when faced with every other moral stand way you have right. of evaluating moral acts, there's nothing wrong with it at all. So you think, "Okay, that's a misfire. Maybe that's the way to to kind of uh, it, yeah, as a kind of a case by case basis." But it does require biting the bullet of saying, just like with fear. That all things being equal, before I've done any other kind of, you know, that might be a sign that there's something up with this thing. Right. And that's why, you know, Peter Singer does a little bit of a disservice here because he's actually using that strategy, but then he uses it to, like, argue that, like, it's okay to kill retarded kids, you know, right. or, like, it's okay to marry your dog. Like, and he's like, <laughs> right. He's, he says, you know. Well, if- well, I don't think it's okay to kill retarded kids. <laughs> I don't see. I mean, I think he's absolutely right about it. Dogs. Yeah, no, no. I I think he's absolutely right about about his. But but making an argument from bestiality. <laughs> no, it's not effective <laughs> rhetorically. Right. Uh, can I tell a joke that Dan Ariely told me? 
guy guy is uh, walking into his house late at night and uh, he has a sheep under his arm uh, and he's he sort of quietly walks up the stairs and into his his bedroom which is dark and just then his his wife who's in the bed stirs and wakes up and says what the hell are you doing and he goes oh, I got okay this is this is the pig that I have sex with when you're asleep. And she goes, what the hell are you talking about? You idiot. That's not a pig. That's a sheep. And he turns to her and goes, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kind of saw that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like <laughs> uh, by the way, maybe, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I actually, so uh, you and I will talk about this may, maybe next episode. Uh, I had a conversation with Dan Ariely, and he, I actually had to edit out a joke that he told because it was perhaps the most offensively told joke that I've ever heard. And, really? Yeah. Can yeah. we use it on our episode? <laughs> no, no. It's not it's too. Oh, you edited out of that? Yeah, yeah. I edited out of what I sent you because I didn't, I couldn't have that joke in the ether of the internet. <laughs> nope. I thought uh, the whole point of our podcast was... I'm was telling you, even I have limits. <laughs> uh, off the air, then, I want to hear this show. Okay. I, I listened to a lot of that conversation that you had with uh, Dan Ariely. The sound was a little weird, because your head, being so far into his large intestine... Was there, uh, was there was, you know, echoing? It just sort of muffled or was whatever. There? But I think you actually did a good job, given <laughs> those kinds of you know, obstacles. Don't, don't, you know, uh, and, and you wonder why you haven't gotten picked. <laughs> No, I love Dan Ariely. Uh, and so, yeah, and so that conversation was around, uh, was centered around his work on dishonesty and cheating, and and fo- when when we should follow rules and and when right. it doesn't make we sense. So maybe trust we'll- our gut, right? It was like the reasonable man test versus right. rules thing. So right. that's a good thing to t- to talk about. Maybe we'll play your your interview with Dan first, and then we can talk about it. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.